This is WMPG in Portland, Maine. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space, a show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. This month, our theme is exploring what it's like to, f- to be gay, lesbian, or bisexual in Maine. My guest tonight is Dr. Marshall Forstein. We're going to be talking about coming out, the role of psychiatry, in, um, and looking at stigma, and also about... Uh, discrimination around gay marriage in this state. Marshall Forestine is the Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard. He has been working in the field of sexual development for 30 years. He's been politically active since the early days of gay rights, and he's also a legally married gay man with two grown kids. Welcome to Safe Space, Marshall. Thank you, Anne. Good to talk to you. I want to start right out by asking you about your own story of coming out, what that was like for you and Maybe you're how you first started to realize that you were gay. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I think my story is not so different from many kids, uh, especially those who grew up in the 50s and uh, 60s like I did. Um, you know, there's a kind of beginning awakening that you're different, and then you finally put a name on that difference depending on how you identify your sexuality. Um I think if you come from a family like I did where people talked openly about differences and there was a kind of celebration of uh, difference that I knew my family would probably be okay with it even if society wasn't. Uh-huh. I remember you told me something about going to the library and just educating yourself about right. anything that began with H-O-M-O. Oh, right, exactly. <laughs> and you know, most of the books on homosexuality were actually checked out. So <laughs> By a similar teen. <clears throat> right, exactly. Because uh, that was the only place that kids could go at the time. There was no internet. There was no place to go online as there is now to find enormous resources, which has really changed the whole coming out process for teens. Right. Just having access to re- learning about it. Absolutely. Make, making that easier. So they were all checked out, but the few that you did read, were they supportive and helpful, or were they well, misleading <clears throat> and biased? Yeah, most of them were kind of on the illness model. They uh, really kind of carried the theme of the day, which is that this was something that, you know, could be changed and uh, probably didn't lead to devastating problems, but could. Um, There were very few books that really talked about the variants of human sexuality as there are today. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, I kind of couldn't believe all the stuff that was being written because it was clearly not my own experience. I didn't feel weird. I felt different. Um... You know, I was a kid who was as comfortable working with my dad hammering nails on the side of the house as I was helping my mom cook in the kitchen or reading a book. I played sports. And so none of the stereotypes that you saw on the limited access to TV at the time. Right, the sort of association of being effeminate and being... Right, the sissy boy stuff that you hear about all the time that somehow that's always correlated with same-sex orientation turns out that the studies show that 50% of boys who are same-sex oriented have kind of atypical gender behavior, but a fair number of heterosexual boys turn out to have atypical behavior as well. Right. It's interesting in my practice, actually, in working with straight men who have some tendencies that I guess, I don't even know if the term effeminate is considered thought, you know, thoughtless at this point. But it's been very difficult for them because so many people assume they're gay. Exactly. And that has its whole other level of difficulty. Right. So in our culture, if you are sensitive, warm, affectionate towards men, if you have a 
more interest in the kind of more ethereal or artistic um, endeavors than you do in hard, you know, football or hockey, then somehow you're identified as being less masculine. Right. And that's very typical of American culture. It's not so true in uh, Western European culture. Do you think it's harder to be gay in the United States than elsewhere? I do. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think, you know, some of the European countries have already had gay marriage for more years. And I think part of it is that the notion of what it means to be a man in other cultures is quite different. We, remember, come from the pioneer culture, the cowboy mentality. Um, right. Macho. What's that? Macho. Macho, exactly. And so I think we have a long legacy of, you know, the Wild West, carrying guns, I mean, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, all the kind of things that uh, speak more to our sort of stereotyping of what, quote, real men are. Yeah. Yeah, and so other countries that aren't burdened with those same myths don't, don't and it's difficult to be different in, to inhabit that difference differently. Right. I mean, it's interesting in, in some of the European cultures, for instance, men can walk down the street, good friends can walk down the street holding hands as a sign of affection, and nobody for a minute thinks that they're gay. And that doesn't country. happen in this country. No, it doesn't. Right. I think it's it's happening in inner cities and more gay areas, but those people who are holding hands are probably gay men <laughs> or right. lesbians. Right, exactly. So coming back to your experience yeah. again, um, so you became aware that you were different. You got a name for it. Right. It sounds like you were not afraid about your family. You figured your family would cope with it. At some point, I realized I'd tell them and that I thought they... They loved me. They admired what I was able to do as a kid. I didn't. My dad was a very sort of non-traditional dad too. He was very comfortable. He was very affectionate. He was um, very open. And I actually can tell you about an experience that I had when I was about oh I don't know about 11 years old. We were walking through the Washington um, Square area of New York City, and uh, there was my dad, my mom, my sister who was a little older, and my brother who was a couple years younger. And we saw a couple of gay men at the time. So this must have been like mid-1950s. Um, actually, about 19, I would say, 59 or 60. There were a couple of gay men in full leather drag holding hands walking through the park. And uh, my brother said, Dad, why are those guys holding hands? My father's response was, well, they must like each other very much, just like I hold your hand and I hold your brother's hand. Men who like each other hold each other's hands. Mm, what a wonderful thing to and, hear. And, you know, I'm hearing that with the voice of my dad saying, it's okay to be different, and also it's okay to show affection. And so for me, already thinking that I was like these guys, perhaps, it was a very, uh, I didn't realize it until many years later how affirming that was of me. Now, I have to say, I don't think my experience was typical. I was going to say, Marshall, if yeah. only that happened to exactly. other people. The reality mm -hmm. is that most fathers could have said something like, well, they're faggots, or that's because they're queer, or if I ever catch you holding hands with somebody, I'll kill you, or a whole host of things that um, you know we hear all the time from patients who, for instance, in therapy, talk about these wounds that they've had as kids by in what are so-called innocent comments that people make. Yeah, so tell me more about the impact of these so-called innocent comments on people. <clears throat> well, you know, there are two different ways that developmental issues affect gay men. One is the, what I would call the crimes of omission, and then the crimes of commission. So the crimes of commission are pretty clear. They're bullying, fag-baiting, calling names like sissy, ostracizing kids who are different or more effeminate. Those are obvious, and those are traumatic for most kids. Yeah. 
the crimes of omission is the lack of any kind of representation in the world of the kind of feelings that the little boys and little girls are feeling towards same-sex partners, Mm -hmm. same-sex playmates. Right, how powerful it is to see nobody like me. Exactly. So, you know, typically, for instance, a pediatrician who might have all of the best interests of his patients at heart says to a 14-year-old boy, so, how you doing? How things going? You know, you got a girlfriend yet? Right. And innocent as it is, it has two ramifications. One, for the gay kid, it's very clear that he's going to shut up and say nothing. But even for heterosexual boys who are at that point developmentally not interested in girls, they're going to shut up too because they think there's something wrong with them. I see that they should be interested. Both both parties feel like they should be interested exactly. in Exactly. And so a comment that I think is genuinely not intended to hurt kids ends up having very, very traumatic meaning to children who interpret it through their lens at that point in their life. Yes, you know, the equivalent that I can make for myself as a woman is sort of the power of seeing, say, a woman behind the altar and realizing that all my life, you know, not seeing that. How exactly. This is the crime of omission. How powerful it is then when you start to see role models that are in positions of authority, that are gay, and that are to be admired. How powerful that is. Right. Yeah. And I think if you're a double minority, you know, if you happen to be African-American and gay or Latino and gay or Asian and gay, you are invisible for a part of your identity but not for the other part. And so then you're stuck between two cultures, really, um, often the invisible culture, your sexuality, being not acceptable within the minority culture, ethnic culture itself either. Right, in, right on both sides. Right. Experiencing discrimination on both sides. Right. Yeah, even trickier. So I want to ask you, Marshall, it sounds like you knew quite young that there was something different about you. You came to have a name for it. What What was the experience for you of moving from knowing something personally to beginning to tell people about it and putting it out there externally? Well, I think <clears throat> the typical pattern for me uh, and for kids can be, take two courses. For me, it was I knew this, I understood it, I read about it. I also knew that it was something probably I should keep to myself until I was ready to really deal with it. And so I became a super student. I became a great athlete. I began to excel at everything I possibly could, thinking that at least I'll be good at things. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this is the best little boy in the world story where you have to be twice as good to be half as acceptable. For a lot of kids, they, in fact, repress this and may turn to other behaviors to deny it. So you see teenage lesbians, for instance, getting pregnant to try to prove that, well, if I can get pregnant, I must be straight. Or teenage gay boys getting girls pregnant because that must mean they're really a man. And so people can either own their identity and then decide what to do with it. In some cases, deal with it right away, come out very early. And that has been shown to be problematic for some kids as well because it sort of takes over the rest of the developmental sequence that they have to go through. Right, because then people define them that way, and sort of every, all, every relationship becomes shaped by that identity. Exactly, yeah. and so they don't get a chance to just be them. Yeah. And then we also see higher rates of substance abuse among kids who want to just forget that this is a part of them. This is particularly true for kids who come from more religious orientations where there's really no way to have the discussion with parents. I cannot tell you how many patients I've treated in therapy who at 12 or 14 or 16 told one of their parents that they were gay, and the parents said, no, you're not. You will not be gay in this family. God will punish you. You Mm -hmm. must not be gay. 
Right. And, you know, it's not something people can choose. That's why when we call sexual orientation a preference, it's really not a preference. One doesn't choose to be gay or lesbian. So I think we, we see various sort of developmental roots, and depending on how well, nego- how, one, how well one negotiates each of those possible pathways will determine how their adult life uh, you know, develops as well. You know, it's interesting hearing you about the role of religion. I'm aware of somebody that I've worked with where the parent is concerned because their child is very is a devout Catholic, right. it's a teenage boy who she's ver- she's concerned is gay, and she's she's worried about protecting him. Right. And it, this sort of it's a reverse dilemma. It's not the parent who's very religious, but the child, and she doesn't know how to help him navigate his faith with his, and she doesn't even know about his orientation. It hasn't been a subject that she's known right. how to broach yet. Right. And, and the child may, in fact, be protecting himself and them with the fantasy that if they stay religious, if they pray to God, if they go to sleep every night and make prayers, that they will somehow wake up in the morning different. Right. Um, I also think it's one reason why we have so much trauma in the Catholic Church, with, uh, and not just Catholic Church, but with religious orders, where there's sexual abuse, because I think so many people go into the religious denominations, particularly in Catholicism where celibacy is so-called the norm, because it's a way of avoiding sexuality. But you can only bottle it up for so long before it comes out in usually pathological ways then. Right. So you're saying, like, who is it who's so driven to need to avoid it to begin with? Right. So it sort of selects for people who have difficulties. Right. It's an interesting thought. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space. And my guest is Marshall Forstein. We're talking about the impact of homophobia on teenagers. I want to shift now to looking at the role of psychiatry in both contributing to that bias over generations and then now, you know, for you as a psychiatrist, how you work to try to undo some of that. Right. Well, you know, I joined the American Psychiatric Association in 1980 when I was a resident. And at that time, it was already seven years after the change in the diagnosis and of the uh, what we call the diagnostic manual. So in 1973, there was a sea change when the American Psychiatric Association began to hear testimony from people who were both expert in the field and gay and lesbian about the fact that the notion that being gay was somehow a mental illness didn't hold up when you put it under scientific scrutiny. In fact, the diagnosis had been made by a bunch of analysts early on who used um, case examples, people that they saw in treatment, who clearly wanted not to be gay and had all sorts of other emotional baggage that went along with that. And from those theoretical and then clinical cases, they developed the notion that therefore all homosexuality was pathological. It was not based on research. It was not it was published as theoretical models, starting with the notion that, you know, there was an unresolved sort of um, developmental problem in childhood with the same sex parent. Right. And it all we really evolved out of Freud's notions of the Oedipus configuration. In fact Freud himself did not think that homosexuality was anything more than a variant and probably a natural evolution in some people, although he did at one point in his career also say that it might be problematic in terms of emotional development. But later analysts really pathologized it to the point where it became a major mental illness. In the late 70s, the data was gathered by a bunch of people who actually looked at gay and straight men side by side with psychological tests 
And when they looked at the test results, nobody could distinguish on the basis of these so-called great tests who was gay and who wasn't, which had been one of the premises of the profession. Right, so everybody looked equally healthy or unhealthy. Exactly, <laughs> and it wasn't based on sexual orientation. Yeah. So we changed the diagnosis from a psychiatric disorder to a normal variant, but there was still this one area called ego dystonic homosexuality, which was left in the diagnostic manual. And that really referred to people who were unhappy with their sexuality and wanted to change. Of course, how could you grow up in this culture without a part of your development feeling unhappy about it? Right. Until you could internalize strengths and normalize it in your own life, there was a part of all of us, I think, as we grew up, who said, you know, I wish there were a pill I'd taken and I'd be like everybody else. Because mm-hmm. it would be easier. Right. Well, being a teenager is all about trying to be like everybody else. Exactly. This is what peer pressure is all about. Yeah. Um, You know, it's sort of like growing up black in America where it would be hard to deny that if you grow up poor in a black family in inner city that you might say, gee, it would be easier to be white. Right. Nobody could deny that. But that doesn't mean that you don't want to be black. Right. It just means that one recognizes how the society judges people and puts different valences on who's valued and who's not. Right, it's about the impact of prejudice in its many forms. Right. I want to shift now to the subject of marriage, which is near and dear to many people's hearts now in Maine. And um, I want to ask you, do you think that legalizing marriage for gay couples will reduce that kind of prejudice? Well, I do think, uh, certainly in Massachusetts, you know, now we're in our fifth or almost sixth year of this uh, marriage, and the sky hasn't fallen, Chicken Little was wrong. Um, (laughs) Even uh, Governor, former Governor Romney, who made a big deal out of us ruining heterosexual marriages, uh, heterosexual people continue to get married, so do gay people. And in fact, there's been so little perturbation in society that people are going like, what's the problem? It's uh-huh. become a non-issue. It just has no impact on anybody except positively for those people who want to get married. And I do think from a psychological perspective, it really has to do with not feeling like a second-class citizen. You know, part of being different in the culture is about, do I get the same rights and privileges as anybody else? So when I was growing up, you know, the thought of being married was something that straight people did. Um, I've been with my husband now for 29 years. Uh, We've been married since 2004 when the law was changed. I have to say, Marshall, it is exciting to hear you say your husband. Well, and and (laughs) in fact... It does make you go, huh? Right. Well, and and being married hasn't really changed our relationship except for a couple of things. One is I feel like the children have a real sense of we're just like every other family now. They Mm -hmm. have really legitimate parents. So we're less of an outlaw in Massachusetts than we were four years ago, five years ago. And I can imagine that has both positive and negative things. I mean, right. they're having fun about me. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I mean, I think, uh, you know, there's the old Jay Leno line, which is he thought gay people had a right to get married and be just as miserable as the rest of us. That's right. Um, I so, know this is what people say to couples is, you know, when you choose to get married, you just have to know your relationship is going to get worse for a while. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, marriage is really, but I do think that when I speak to gay men who've gotten married, there is a sense of renewed commitment. There's a sense of renewed belonging to community. Yeah. Certainly in our community where we live, I think everybody around us was just wonderfully uh, excited that we could celebrate the same kinds of rituals that they could. Yeah, And it makes you feel, and I tell you, I've never felt stigmatized as much as after getting married and living in Massachusetts, then traveling out of state and feeling like an outlaw. 
Right. So then the contrast became even more stark. Right. So I'll give you an example. If I had an accident, God forbid, here in Massachusetts, my husband would be able to make all the rights and privileges of deciding for my health care based on our marriage. If I travel, as I do often to other states where there aren't recognitions of gay marriage, then I could be in an accident and my partner would not be able to come down there and make decisions on my behalf. It's a horrifying thought. Yeah. So in some ways, we have to have extra protections even now that carry the powers of attorney and healthcare proxy with us wherever we go. So even though it's happening in you know states one by one, until we really have it as a national thing, there will be a sense that we're still second-class citizenship in certain mm. states. Right. So I want to I want to ask you about how you understand, given that it's you know now seems to be such a non-issue. Right. How do you understand why people do get so threatened by it from from a psychological perspective? Well, I, I think there are two things. One is I think people confuse marriage with Judeo-Christian principles and don't really know that the legal status of marriage was granted by the states and commonwealths way before religious institutions sanctified them. So this is a contract that goes back much further than organized religion. Mm. Two, That's interesting. That actually is news to me. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, you know, there, there were marriages way, way back before we had Judeo-Christian theology. Um, so... In the well, when you say that, just so I understand that, do you mean marriages like you know Native Americans got married before the Puritans arrived? What, what do you mean? Sure, exactly? and also even before the Hebrews, uh, five thousand years ago, developed the marriages. There were tribes in which there were agreements that when you quote married somebody, it was a, it was granted as a right by the tribe or the state or the province that that then described who owned what. Now, what was interesting back then, interestingly enough, that when early marriages occurred, women, remember, were considered property. Right. So marriage hasn't always been equal. Um, I would say on- only until very recently. Right. So the other thing is I think that people fear that if somebody gets something that they have, that it will dilute what they have, as though there's not enough goodwill in marriage to go around. Ah, so it's sort of like a scarcity model. If exactly. I have to share this, then it will cheapen right. it somehow. And also it's a way yeah. of saying, you know, we're special, you're not. You yes. don't really belong the way we do. And so I think there's a way in which every group scapegoats another group. You know. Yes. But the real issue is about civil rights and you know, we're not out I, I personally don't believe that every religious denomination has to sanctify every marriage. I think that's That's actually different. what the law is in Maine. It's saying that churches can decide. Right. And and I think that it's perfectly reasonable for a denomination, although I may not agree with it, I think it's fine for a denomination to say, you know, we won't sanctify legal marriages. But I think legal marriage is a civil marriage which is granted by the state. Whether denominations choose to sanctify it or not, it can be up to them, and I think people within those denominations will have to take that fight on themselves. But we do have a separation of church and state in this country, and I think that the real issue of civil marriage is that it should be equally applied. Right. And I, and I was curious, you know, you mentioned something earlier about why you think it is that this issue is at the forefront of what's going on nationally today. Right. And what's your what's your sense of that? Well, you know, I think it's a way of, I, I think people are terrified of change generally. I think that when you start to think about gay and lesbian people as no different from other people in the rights and privileges, then who do we scapegoat? We can no longer scapegoat women or people of color. So who's left? You know? 
and I think society has always wanted to have one group that is at the bottom of the uh, system, so to speak. And I think that, uh, you know, it's an interesting dilemma, then, if everybody's equal, what, what does that really mean in our culture? And why should, the, why should a majority of people decide what a civil right is? I mean, you know, if it, were, if it had been left up to the majority, uh, blacks would never have been given the right to vote. Mm. Right, so you're saying a referendum, in a way, is like the tyranny of the majority. Why? Absolutely. Our, our, culture was ba- our country was based on the protection of the minority from the majority that had its own interests at heart. Right, so, the very structure of our government reflects absolutely, this. Absolutely. That's why most of the decisions that have moved civil rights ahead have been court decisions or legislative actions that did not require the vast majority of people. So what if, for instance, tomorrow men decided that women were taking far too many jobs and we instituted a law that said women can never make the same amount of money that men can make? And we put it to a national vote. Right. Well, of course, because women make up 52% of the population. <laughs> well, except it's interesting. Some women even don't believe that they deserve the same. I know. The, the Equal Rights Amendment didn't pass. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, the fact that that's evidence that we carry within us a great deal of stigma and bias that we're not even often aware of. Right. Internalized self-hatred exactly. at some level. Yeah. So I want to come back to this a really provocative point you're making, that society needs a scapegoat. That's a fascinating thought that we people need, almost psychologically, need to have someone that they feel better than. Right. It's almost like their self-esteem is dependent on that. Right. And, and, you What's know, the you solution re- to that, Marshall? What's that? What's the solution to that? Well, I think the solution to that, frankly, is getting to know people. You know, we know that prejudice dies hard, but that when you actually know somebody who you're afraid of, it's harder to be afraid of them. Right. And I think that that's the great unknown is what scares us. You know, I mean, in in the army, for instance, people were terrified of blacks being integrated into the army. And then when it happened and all these white guys, you know, fought side by side with the black guys, they became friends. And suddenly it wasn't an issue anymore. Right, so that's why why desegregation actually has such a value, because when you build relationships, by definition, you start exactly. to reduce prejudice. Exactly. When women and men work side by side, and men begin to say, you know, we can do this. Right. It's, it's another reason why don't ask, don't tell Doesn't has a sense. terrible consequence, which Absolutely. is that it's the reason why coming out is so important. Absolutely. And in fact, when you look at the ramifications of don't ask, don't tell, most of the sexual abuse that's gone on in the military has been heterosexual. There's almost no reported cases of, you know, same-sex abuse. The problem is that the uh, institution is actually way behind what the actual people in the services believe. There was a study that looked at the fact that most people within the service don't care whether gay people fight side-by-side side with them or not. Just For them, it's not the issue. It's, is he a good soldier? Is she a good soldier? Right. Look what it took to get women into the military. Right, a whole other story. Marshall, I realize we are going to have to stop. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. You've you've gotten me thinking. I'm going to go home thinking about scapegoating (laughs) (laughs) and the psychological need for it. My thanks to you so much. My pleasure. And my thanks also to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for the music. If you have a suggestion or a a request for the show, please contact me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com. Next week, 
I'll be interviewing Jen Hodston and Soleil on the subject of being or having a lesbian mom. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison. <laughs> 